Reading from Ezekiel 33. Here in this chapter, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and the Lord calls him a watchman. He is like a watchman on the wall, and uh, because of his word, it is to move the Israelites uh, to action, to do something as he gives them uh, the warning of, uh, that comes from the Lord. And so we're going to think about some of those things today as we then turn our attention to James, but this will be an appropriate passage to to bring our attention to some of them. So give your attention to the reading of God's holy word in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1, God's holy and inspired word. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land... And the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, That wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Therefore, son of man, say to your countrymen, the righteousness of the righteous man will not save him when he disobeys, and the wickedness of the wicked man will not cause him to fall when he turns from it. The righteous man, if he sins, will not be allowed to live because of his former righteousness. If I tell the righteous man that he will surely live, but then he trusts in his righteousness and does evil, none of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. He will die for the evil he has done. And if I say to the wicked man, you will surely die, but he then turns away from his sin and does what is just and right, if he gives back what he took and pledged for a loan, returns what he has stolen, follows the decrees that give life, and does no evil, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the sins he has committed will be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He will surely live. Amen. And then go forward to James, the book of James, 
chapter 1. James 1, verses 22 through 25. We'll read verse 21, and we'll get uh, some reference to that today. So we'll begin at verse 21. James 1, this is God's holy word. Give your attention to its reading. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And then our passage for today. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your word humbly and we are struck by the simplicity of these words and And uh, yet, we know that we need your grace in order to live uh, according to them. So would you uh, be abundantly gracious today. And from your storehouse of goodness, would you make your blessings flow uh, far as the curse is found. In this place, that we might live for you and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. In ancient cultures, the watchman's word was meant to propel you into fervent action. Probably there were many different jobs that people had when the sword was coming against the city. Uh, So many people had different responsibilities to do in that moment, but the point was you need to to get right to doing it. Uh, In our house, the uh, severe weather siren is a lot like the watchman on the wall. Uh, we, we have some fear of, of storms, thunderstorms, windstorms, and then that windstorm that happened, I think it was last summer. And uh, so if it's not Tuesday at 10 o'clock a.m. and uh, that severe weather siren goes off, there are some, some littler ones in our house that are immediately moved into action. Uh, I tend to, to think it's my responsibility to walk outside when I hear that and, and try to see the storm. I like to see uh, storms coming from afar. Sometimes I like to, uh, to watch them unfold. Uh, the, the, the six and four-year-old in our house don't like that. Right? They, they want to go right to the basement. They want everyone to be in, in, uh, in the basement. So sometimes we have the problem of, is this an ambulance or a fire truck or is it the severe weather siren? But the point is, it, it propels them into doing something, into action. And that is what James is speaking about in today's passage. The Word of God is meant to uh, put us into action based upon 
what it says. We think about last week, the, the passage that we considered. Right? If, you, if you are sinfully angry, receive with meekness the power of God's word. Uh, it is God's word. It is the power of God's word. It is accepting it that will allow you to see uh, your habits and behaviors changed. And much of that is reinforced today but as James teaches us this, to, to receive or accept the word of God means to do what it says or to strive to do what it says. If we are not striving to do what the word of God says with all of our might, with all of the strength that God provides, then we are not humbly accepting. Uh, we are not receiving with meekness the word that is planted in us. And so that, that is how that connects to last week's passage. So we are then confronted with this question, uh, what kind of a knower are you? Or how do you know the word of God? What, what is it that you know about it? And what is the nature of your knowledge? When I was growing up, I uh, attended government schools. You might know them as uh, public schools, but I call them government schools because I found out over the course of my life the public doesn't have much to do with uh, what is being taught there, but I digress. Uh, one of the things that's beautiful, of course, about Christian education is that it's able to take uh, the vast knowledge of this world, to see the order of this world, uh, to see history that has gone before us, are able to tie it all together into a, a whole training, a holistic training of the human being to be oriented towards the glory of God. And, and really, one of the key, when, when Christian education is operating correctly, one of the things that is emphasized is that all of the things that we know, we really don't know them truly until we have them pointed towards the glory of God, until we see the way in which it propels us to be a person who serves the Lord. Right? If all of the knowledge that we have, if, it, if it's not for God's glory, then we have missed it. And that goes for our knowledge of the Bible as well. If it's not for God's glory, if it doesn't bring us into a life that is lived more for Him, then we have missed it. Scripture, when it is rightly understood is seeking to use us as instruments for God and his glory. And yet, sinfully often, it is used as an instrument itself for pride, success, or glory, or some other sinful end. Scripture, God's word, confronts us, it summons us, it commands us, it directs us all by the power of his spirit. The overarching uh, theme of the scriptures is, is not a school, but a covenant. And this was uh, Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss who made this wonderful observation. Scripture is not a school. It is a, a covenant. In other words, its purpose is not for bare theoretical knowledge, but for a, a vitality of life that's lived in communion with God, both experientially and morally. And so Voss says this in one of his lectures. He says, God has not revealed himself in a school, but in the covenant. And the covenant as a communion with life is all comprehensive, embracing all the conditions and interests of those contracting it. 
There is a knowledge and an imparting of knowledge here, but in a most practical way and not merely by theoretical instruction. He says, he goes on to say this, the knowledge of God that's communicated by scripture is nowhere for a purely intellectual purpose. From beginning to end, it is a knowledge intended to enter into the actual life of man, to be worked out by him in all its practical bearings. That's what scripture is for, to bring us into communion with God and to give vitality to the life that we live before the face of God. Psalm 119, I've been focusing on that a lot, both in Matthew Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and in James, because it gives such a a beautiful picture of that, that life uh, lived in joy and fellowship with God in light of his commandments. And in verse 7, it says this, I will, of Psalm 119, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. So the knowing of Psalm 119 is is a knowing that feeds into your life That is lived before the face of God. I will praise you when I learn your righteous rules. What kind of a knowing is that? If you don't truly know what scripture is teaching, you will not do what it says. But if you do know it in the way that is intended, you will do what it says. So then the more meaningfully the more humbly and the more honestly you interact with Scripture, trusting that the Spirit is working through at the same time, the more, practically speaking, the more you will be drawn into communion with God. This is why it's, it's not improper. Anytime I read a, a book on pastoral theology or the, the life of the pastor early on, usually in introduction or chapter one, there is some mention made of the the fact that there is a proper expectation that ministers are to be exemplary in their holiness. Why? Because their life is meant to be bathed in Scripture. And they're meant to bring these truths to the people of God. And if it is done honestly and genuinely, from faith, expecting and trusting the Spirit, then one would naturally expect their life to reflect that very kind of thing. And so, Uh, Thomas Murphy says this. He says, The pastor is but a man, and that is certainly true. I can attest to it. The pastor is but a man, and the struggle against sin and imperfections must constantly be carried on in him as well as in other men. At the same time, it is true that high-toned principle and consistency are expected of him, and it is right that they should. Everything in the heart experience which he is supposed to have passed through and the profession which he has made, the sacred office to which he is called the superior advantages for sanctity which he has had, and in the holy influences which he has appointed to teach, all these justify the expectation that he will be a man of more than ordinary godliness. A life that's lived within Scripture, in the light of Scripture, to have those advantages of sanctity, as Murphy says, means that one would expect that they would be exemplary in their holiness. Why? Well, it has nothing to do with the the value of, or the intelligence of the minister. It's all about the power of God working in and through his word. There's nothing, uh, perhaps nothing, that's more of a, a death sentence for a congregation than a minister who is good at talking about the Bible and bad 
at living it out. But a pastor who does not know the word in the James sense cannot teach it in the James sense. What kind of a knower are you? What kind of knowers are we? And this, of course, is connected to the kind of hearers that we are. Some people come to this passage in James, very famous passage in James, and they say, well, what James is probably uh, inveighing against is the dismissive hearer. The person who kind of comes to church and just says, oh, whatever, you know, I'm really, not really going to pay attention, but I'm just kind of here to check the box. And that's really, if you consider it, that's not what James is primarily addressing. This is really a warning for those who take great interest in Scripture, those who listen intently, who believe that they understand it well. And even though they listen intently and perhaps take great delight in the theoretical knowledge of the Bible, they are deceived. Those who say, well, I'm fine because I understand all of this. I'm fine because I understand the way salvation works. I'm fine because I know lots of things about the scriptures. And I even like to learn things about the Bible. Those who would rely on the theoretical knowledge that they have. And allow that to be their confidence as to whether or not they are in a right standing with God. Deceive themselves. It seems to be that that kind of thing... Uh, that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy, where he speaks of those who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They do not have the internal reality of a changed heart. Doug Moo, in his James commentary, says this, People can think they are right with God when they really are not. And so it is for those people who hear the word regular church attenders, seminary students, and even seminary professors, but do not do it. They are mistaken in thinking that they are truly right with God, for God's word cannot be divided into two parts. If one wants the benefits of its saving power, one must also embrace it as a guide for life. The person who fails to do the word, James therefore suggests, is a person who has not truly accepted God's word at all. So that brings us back to where we began today. That brings us back to where we ended last week. Accepting the word. To accept the word of God is to hear it in its fullness. To understand that it confronts us with a life that is to be lived. And to do everything we can in order to see our life produce obedience. Have you received the word? Or have you deceived yourself? Have you received the word? Or have you deceived yourself? Do you see, secondly, do you see that in Christ you are free? Do you see that in Christ you are free? James uses this nice picture for us, the example of a mirror. Back then, uh, mirrors were kind of little shiny pieces of metal. And in order to, to see yourself, it really demanded your focus Uh, You you needed to have a a careful and concentrated look into a a piece of metal in order to really see something about your appearance. And so that is one of the connections being made with with this illustration. That is the way you are to look into Scripture. They didn't have the crystal clear wall size mirrors that we have today. It was this careful, concentrated look. And that is the way you are supposed to look at Scripture. With a careful 
and a concentrated focus. But there are those who forget. And so we have this remembering and forgetting in this passage. And those who willingly forget, here it's, this is not necessarily just a, a bare ability of memory, but it is those who fail to live, those who forget are those who fail to live in light of what God has done or fail to live in light of what scripture calls us to do. Using the passage that we looked at last week, everyone should be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. There may be many people who say, well, I, I, I don't remember exactly how the verses go throughout Scripture, but I know that God has called me to not be sinfully angry. So as I live my life, I'm going to strive to do that, to not be sinfully angry. I know I'm not supposed to live in anger. And that is remembering to a certain extent, right? Forgetting would be disregarding that. And not living in light of it. In the Old Testament, God demanded that the Israelites not forget his mighty acts. Remember that I've saved you. Remember that I have brought you out of Egypt. Remember that I brought you into the promised land. Remember and be grateful. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says this. When your herds and flocks multiply, this is God speaking to Israel. When your herds and flocks multiply... And your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. And then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. See, remembering is a call to live in light of what God has done, to bring to mind his goodness and his salvation and to be affected by his goodness. Once again, Doug Moo in his James commentary says, to remember God And his acts and his teachings is to contemplate them in such a way that they make a lasting impression on the heart and the mind. The person who forgets what he has seen in God's word is one who reads or listens superficially, not imprinting the message on the soul. Do you contemplate what God has done in such a way that they make a lasting impression on your heart and your mind. Everyone has different abilities in regards to memorization and those kinds of things. And that's not to say memorization is not important. It most certainly is. But do you remember God's word in such a way that it stamps you, makes a lasting impression upon you, and affects the course of your life, the way that you live and the decisions that you make? I appreciate it. This is very encouraging to me, but uh, many of you, way way more than usual, and this is not me, you know, fishing for compliments or anything like that, but many of you last week uh, commented on how much you you appreciated the sermon and how much it it convicted you uh, or brought things to to your mind that you realized you needed to do. But uh, to listen to that sermon and to appreciate it the day that you have heard it, right, that is the, the, the gaze into the mirror, 
uh, to appreciate it seven days later, 14 days later, two months later. That is to be stamped by it. So I'm not saying that I need this from any of you. But if anyone were to say to a pastor, you know, I really appreciated that sermon you preached three months ago. And that has really stayed with me. And that has really changed the way that I act or I live. Those are the kinds of things that James, that's the kind of thing that James is, is talking about. That long, careful gaze is meant to propel us to action. To live for God and his glory. To strive to do what the word says. When I was in seventh grade, I... I still remember this day and the, the feelings, the embarrassment, because uh, I remember as the day was going on, more people started making comments. There was something that was appearing on my face. So I'm in seventh grade, so there's a, a big blemish that's appearing on my face, and I was being teased by it. Very embarrassing experience for me. I'm totally, I'm fine about it, don't worry. But it was kind of a, a troubling day. And I remember, I finally go into the bathroom and look in the mirror, and I see that there's this big thing on my face, this big blemish that has appeared on my face. And you should have seen, I mean, I rode, how fast I rode my bike home after school. I I mean, I wanted to crawl into a hole and hide, but I stayed at school the rest of the day. But I I ride my bike so fast home, and I come through the door, and you should have seen the way that I was propelled to action. Mom, what should I do? What do I do first? Tell me what to do. You need to go to the store, Mom. You need to buy every cream that they have. You need to sterilize the needle. You need to get the the hot rag ready for me. All these kinds of things. Nobody can do anything until I've taken care of this situation. I'm not going back to school like this again tomorrow. I probably wasn't prepared for the the kinds of challenges I would face in the next six years in in the same kind of of way. But this vaulted me into action. I took action immediately. What I saw in the mirror moved me. What I saw in the mirror made me take action. And if you hear something from God's word that is like that, that exposes a problem that you know is there in your heart, like putting you in front of a mirror and you see a big blemish there, the question that James is posing is, will you take action in light of what God has shown to you in his word? Will it stamp you and your life? Will it affect what you do? John Owen has a great, uh, wonderful spiritual work, The Mortification of Sin. And uh, he says this, Keep watch against any breakout of your sin. No pun intended there, I suppose. Keep watch against any breakout of your sin. Consider the ways, the people, the opportunities, the activities, and the conditions that have in the past led to sin, especially if it happens often, and be extremely watchful about all of them. Understand and know how you fall into sin. Rearrange your life according to it. Then, he says, you must act quickly and forcefully against your sin as soon as you find out it is acting against you. Fight fast and fight hard. Don't let it get any ground. Rise up and fight with all your strength against it. When God's word exposes something in our lives, will we take drastic action? Or will we be the kind of hearer that is deceived? 
that James warns us about. Well, James also thankfully brings us then to a couple of things that remind us of the power to fight, the power to fight. Here, Scripture, and in some sense of probably talking about um, a holistic uh, view of Scripture, James says those who look into the, the perfect law, the law of liberty, what does he mean by that? Well, we don't have time to totally unpack it. You could probably do a, a, whole, a whole sermon or a whole sermon series just on this idea of the, the law of liberty. But what James is alluding to is the, the law of God, the instruction from God's word or all of scripture as it has come to be known and understood in Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, does not change the law of God, but he fulfills it. And he brings it to its fullest interpretation, right? It's like he brings it into the brightest light. And the point is, if we are united to Christ, he sets us free from the condemning power of the law. In Jesus Christ, those who are joined in in covenant union with him to bring that covenant idea back, right? Scripture is not a school, it's a covenant. Those who are joined in covenant union with Jesus Christ by faith, uh, they, the, the power of the law is not one that condemns. The law becomes a delight. It's a joyful realization of freedom. As we look to Jesus Christ and all that he has done, as we re- considered earlier this morning, he was rich, became poor, so that he might do in us what is impossible to do in and of ourselves, not only to be freed from condemnation, but also to live in ways that are pleasing unto God. To joyfully give all that we have in order to serve and love and honor Christ. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And so, uh, the law of liberty, the perfect law, is to look at all of Scripture and to see how Jesus Christ is right at the center of it. And that to know and understand the main thrust of Scripture is to see if you are united to the truly blessed one. Because James says, the one who does... What is good, the one who does what is right, the one who obeys the word of God, he is the one who will be blessed in his doing. Well, that begins with Jesus Christ. And then so the main thrust of scripture is if you are united to that truly blessed one, you are freed from the condemning power of the law. The righteous standard will never be able to be brought against you as an instrument of condemnation, but rather we are freed then Uh, To live for God and his glory. And that brings us again to that covenant idea. The covenant idea as the main thrust of scripture. Means that in uh, the central acts of redemptive history. We are not spectators. We are participants. So at the cross of Calvary in Jesus death. We died if we're united to him. In his death we died. And our sin was dealt with there. In his resurrection, we are raised. In his life, we live. In his session in heaven, we are seated. He raised us up and seated us with him in Christ in the heavenly places. The thrust of scripture is that we don't view these things from afar. We participate in these things. And thus living in Christ, in the power of the life that he gives in this covenant union, is the power by which we become doers of the word. Because we hear that it begins in union with the Son of God. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's that wonderful uh, encouragement at the end. He will be blessed in his doing. And as we said, that begins with Jesus Christ. He is the truly blessed one. Look at the reward. Look at uh, the enjoyment that Christ has of obtaining a bride, of obtaining uh, eternal blessedness, a name above every name as the one who gave it all and then was raised up to heaven uh, in glory. But it reminds us too that as we strive in these ways to be doers of the word by God's grace united to Jesus Christ, that there is blessing simply in being a doer of the word. Do you believe? That blessedness, no matter your circumstances, blessedness is found in obeying God's word. Blessedness is found in doing God's word. Brings us back to Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek him with their whole heart. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. I've had a couple of uh, college friends, roommates, uh, who have converted either to Roman Catholicism or to to Eastern Orthodoxy. And all of our theological discussions now, it seems like they're always wanting to talk about uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I found this verse to be so interesting as I was thinking about these things. Luke 11, verse 27. A woman in the crowd raises her voice to Jesus and says to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. This woman looks to Jesus and says, there is something that is amazing about this man. And because there's something that is so amazing about him, then, wow, blessed is the woman who bore him. Now, of course, Mary has said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That is true, and we can hold to that and, and emphasize it. But Jesus says this. He said, blessed is the womb that bore you. And, and But he said, Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed rather, not blessed also, not blessed alongside of, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So we need to hear and see and believe that there is blessing in hearing and keeping and doing the word of God. That as we see lives that are eaten up by sin, we need to remind ourselves that blessing is found in doing the word of God and that we will be blessed in our doing, even as we do them as united to Christ, always trusting in the gospel, always trusting in God's grace, never believing that it's our righteousness that wins any position before God. Yet he gives us this promise. You will be blessed in your doing. So look to the law of liberty today. The law of freedom. See your life in Christ's life. In his death you died. In his resurrection you were raised. In his life you live. In his session you are seated. See your life in Christ's life. And ask God for wisdom as to how you might take drastic action in your life against your sin, that you might be a doer of the word. 
James says earlier in chapter 1, God delights to bestow upon us wisdom. He gives it liberally to those who ask. So there's a sense in which we say, well, that's nice. I, I understand that. It's great to know that God gives wisdom to those who ask. But it's not meant to, to just be chewed on that way and to think that it's nice that God gives wisdom. James tells us that so that we might pray longingly, daily, for wisdom in order that we might know ways in which we would live for him. Ask God for wisdom as to how you might take drastic action to do battle against the sin in your life so that you might be a doer of the word. The Bible is not a school. It's a covenant. Live in that covenant union with Christ today and all the days of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you teach us to humbly accept the word that's planted in us. And as we consider these, these weighty words and commands, um, we're reminded that uh, we need your help and, and we need your grace. Oh, Father, um, make Christ all the more glorious to us as we see him, the truly blessed one, the one who loved righteousness and, and hated wickedness, uh, the one who uh, received that, that blessing, that anointing, and that uh, the oil drips down from him, uh, upon him, and down to those who follow him in his train. We thank you for the Holy Spirit given to us to bring that life of Christ uh, to a living and vital reality. And uh, we pray for help for anyone here um, who may need uh, these very words today. Uh, that you might do a mighty work in hearts and lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.